Well, Acts 19 is another one of those chapters uh, that really needs more than one sermon. Four would be best, even three, at least two, but we're going to do it in one. (laughs) There is so much good stuff in here and incredibly applicable to the world, the church, and our personal lives. But Luke in the book of Acts is giving broad brush accounts of the early church. And so we are taking a broad brush approach, but I really do encourage you to take some time on your own this week to consider the fine details in the beautiful artwork, which is this account of Ephesus, and perhaps even to consider reading Paul's letter then to the Ephesians knowing that it is this group of people from this place with all that had taken place there. That we might see any of it uh, and be able to apply it well, let's go before the Lord in prayer as we start. God of Revelation, we are always pleased to have your word before us, for the freedom to open it so readily, to have such access to it, to read it in public, to have an exposition of it in public where there is no threat of bodily harm to us. Instead, not only is there not a threat, but there is the hope of blessing. There is the hope of revealing that we will understand you and your ways more fully and that it would transform how we view things and how it is that we live in a lonely and confused world. Help us to see it that we might take the gospel into this world for your glory. Send then your spirit to do what your spirit must do, which is to bear witness to the reading and to the preaching of your word, praying then for the preacher who is not worthy and only by your grace is he able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, Acts 19 is clearly divided into two sections the ministry in Ephesus, and then the riot in Ephesus. And within each of those two larger sections, there are two smaller sections. So I'm going to divide the reading and exposition into those four sections. And so beginning with the first seven verses from chapter 9 and the account of the ministry in Ephesus, listen to God's word. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. And anyone who reads this passage is immediately drawn to verse 6 and wants to answer questions from verse 6. But it is the lack of consideration for the five verses that precede it that results in the frequent misinterpretation and misapplication of this passage. Verse 1 connects our passage to what we saw last week, where God desired Apollos and us to understand the way of the Lord more adequately, and so God providentially put into place the people, Priscilla and Aquila, 
and resources to accomplish this. And so Apollos, if you recall from last week, was dynamite with the scriptures because he had been well catechized. Apollos was well educated in the Old Testament scriptures and had even heard something about Jesus, but did not have the whole story, the whole understanding of the gospel. And so he was in Ephesus while Paul was up in Galatia ministering to the churches there. Last week we saw that Priscilla and Aquila explained to Apollos the way of God more adequately. And so then Apollos went over to Corinth as Paul came down to Ephesus. The two of them, Paul and Apollos, having never actually met one another at that time. So when Paul arrives in Ephesus, he discovers that the people there only knew as much as Apollos had known and what Apollos taught. And so he asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And so Paul says, then what baptism did you receive? And they said, John's baptism. And again, that's what we saw last week in Acts 18.25, where it's revealed that Apollos spoke with great fervor, taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. Apollos then learns more because Priscilla and Aquila explained more to him. This, by the way, proves all the more what we saw last week, that neither Priscilla nor Aquila were teachers or pastors or elders. In the synagogue, the furthest the teaching had gone was to John the Baptist and the baptism of repentance. They had not yet heard the whole gospel. The role of Priscilla and Aquila was not as evangelists, but as tent makers who were getting to know the city of Ephesus, preparing for Paul's arrival. Explaining the way of God more adequately to Apollos was an anomaly, which is why it's recorded in the book of Acts. So when Paul arrives in chapter 19, he begins the evangelistic ministry, taking people beyond John's baptism to Jesus' baptism. And so for us, it is important that we share the whole gospel or it isn't evangelism. In fact, the word evangelism is from the word evangel, which means gospel. Evangelism is the ministry of the whole gospel. Having people just believe that there is a God or saying that they believe in God is not the whole gospel. Having people come to church because they love the people and the programs is not the whole gospel. The whole gospel says Jesus is the Christ, the second person of the triune God who came in the flesh who came into the world and lived the perfect life that we failed to live, and by his death and by his resurrection, he has taken upon himself all of our sins and given us the credit for his perfect righteousness so that we place our faith in Jesus Christ for abundant life and eternal life. It is our response to this gospel message with Jesus as Lord and Savior that changes lives and whole communities. And so Apollos... And some in Ephesus knew some of the facts about Jesus, but they did not know about the Holy Spirit or the work of the Spirit who regenerates our hearts, giving us new birth and new lives so that we can believe, and the Holy Spirit who then dwells in our hearts and brings believers together to form the church. The Holy Spirit who applies the redemption accomplished by Christ to every aspect of life and existence. And so the whole gospel is about the whole God who rules over our whole life and over the whole universe. The Apostle Paul shares this whole gospel. 
And those who are regenerate by the Holy Spirit are able to declare faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Now, Pentecostals interpret this passage as saying that you might have received Jesus, but you have not received the Holy Spirit like they have, and so you must also receive the Holy Spirit. And do you see how wrong that interpretation is? Paul is not giving them the Holy Spirit in addition to Jesus. He is giving them the whole gospel of the whole triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, which was not fully revealed in the Old Testament scriptures or by John the Baptist. The Old Testament and John the Baptist were waiting for the coming Messiah. John looked to the one who was to come after him, of whose sandals he was unworthy to untie. That Messiah has now been fully revealed. He is Jesus, God in the flesh. Notice then also that Paul does not baptize them into the Holy Spirit. They were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. The focus is on Jesus not the Holy Spirit. It is Jesus who has accomplished our redemption and the Holy Spirit who then applies it to us. So that the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied is simply the evidence that they had received Jesus as Savior and Lord. The Son of God who sits on David's throne is the king over all. And that manifestation of the Holy Spirit was what we saw on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem among other groupings of the people in the first century during this apostolic age. Miracles like this and miracles that we'll read about in a few moments were authenticating miracles that ceased at the close of the apostolic age in 70 AD. And so all who receive Jesus as Savior and Lord get the whole God. It's why today we baptize in the triune name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, there's much more that could and should be said about that. But let's look at part two of the ministry in Ephesus, beginning at verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. 
After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Now back up in verse 8, there are two important things that we take from verse 8. First, that Paul preached in the synagogue for three months. And second, that what he argued persuasively about was the kingdom of God. Again, first, that Paul was able to preach in the synagogue for three months is remarkable. Everywhere else that he has gone, he's been booted out after a couple of weeks. Three months is a quarter of the year, like our Sunday school quarters, 12 to 13 Sabbath days. It means that the Jews in Ephesus were giving thoughtful consideration to Paul's preaching. And he was arguing persuasively, more accurately, reasoning and persuading. And that word reasoning is, again, dialoguing with them. So there was reasonable dialogue happening for three months in the synagogue. And then secondly, Paul dialogued persuasively about the kingdom of God. That's different than what we've seen in the other synagogues of other cities. In the other cities, Paul was dialoguing that Jesus was the Christ, dialoguing that Jesus was risen. But in God's providence, those debates had already been covered by Apollos. The part that was missing was the part that Apollos had learned from Priscilla and Aquila and summarized to some extent in the first seven verses, as we just saw. Paul was teaching them about the Trinity, that there's a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit, one God. And Jesus is of the Godhead and the eternal King who has inaugurated his kingdom reign by his life, death, and resurrection. So that we are now living in the continuation period of the kingdom, applying the gospel to every aspect of life and existence. And we look forward to Christ's return when he will come to consummate his kingdom and bring a new heaven and a new earth. It's all that stuff that we are still learning today. When we do the serious discipleship that goes beyond just the gospel of personal salvation, when we begin to ask, how does the gospel, how does salvation apply to our vocational calling? to the church, to government, to politics, to education, to business and industry, to the arts, to technology, to everything. How does the whole gospel about the whole God apply to the whole of life? Not just our private life, but our public life as well. Well, Paul spent three months teaching this biblical theology about the kingdom of God. Clearly, they met for more than a 25-minute sermon and perhaps an hour of Sunday school. Clearly, they spent time together to be discipled and to consider these things. And that explains what happens in verse 9. Some of them became obstinate, and they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. Now, if people are going to simply have personal beliefs and keep them personal and private, that's no big deal. The rub comes when those personal beliefs spill out into the public, into public policy and public practices. Conflicting private beliefs go virtually unnoticed, but conflicting public beliefs is what we see, hear, and experience all the time. The result of conflicting public beliefs is to become obstinate, literally become hardened. 
In fact, that word that's translated obstinate in the NIV and others have it as stubborn or hardened is where we get the medical term sclerosis. I have a friend who has scleroderma, the hardening and tightening of skin and connective tissue. There are other kinds of sclerosis, the abnormal hardening of body tissue. And many of us know people who have multiple sclerosis, which attacks the protective coating around nerve fibers and forms hardened scar tissue, sclerosis. So when people disagree, they become increasingly hardened to other people and other points of view. Pharaoh, his heart was hardened when confronted with messages from God through God's servant Moses. He had a sort of cardiosclerosis, a hardened heart, if you will. When people disagree, we become disagreeable. Is that not what we see all day, every day? People argue in the public square about the various issues of our day, and people get less and less reasonable as we get more and more hardened. Can you see why a riot is coming to Ephesus? Do you see why riots still happen around the United States and around the world today? Do you see why this passage is so incredibly relevant? Those who become hardened to the message of the whole gospel and the kingdom of God publicly maligned the way. Now, it's the first time that we hear it being called the way, but it certainly makes sense. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Christ. And the word translated maligned literally means to speak evil of. And the word publicly is that word plethora. So they spoke of the way, they spoke evil of the way to before the plethora of people. And as people became increasingly hardened, they began to speak evil before the plethora of people. Does that not describe our world? And so I've said before, and I will say again, perhaps the greatest influence that Christians can have on our world right now is not to let ourselves become hardened, even against those who are hardened against us and the gospel. Not to return speaking evil for speaking evil. Instead, through Jesus Christ, we seek to overcome evil with good. That's the gospel of grace. Hardening, evil comes, and it is buffeted and repelled by grace extended. That's what God has done for us in Christ and what we can do for one another. And that is what Paul does in the rest of verse 9. We read, Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Paul walked away from the unreasonable, evil-speaking people. Rather than shouting back at them, he said, I'm going to take this over to the lecture hall and have daily discussions, daily dialogue over there. And that's what he did. He did daily dialogue at the lecture hall for two years. That word lecture hall, by the way, is literally the word school. School is a Greek word. And it's kind of funny because the word school more literally means leisure or freedom from labor. The sense was that it's where you went away from work to learn, to take a break from real work and go to school. Teachers are giving me death glares right now. And students are looking at me like I'm crazy, but I get that all the time. But, but look, I spend almost my 
whole day, every day, learning and teaching. I haven't done an honest day's work in years. So I'm, I'm with you on this one. Now, obviously the Lord honors learning and teaching. God ordained Paul to teach for two years in this school so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. It's estimated that over a third of a million people lived in Ephesus, let alone all the people that traveled in for trade. So the ministry that Paul was doing was vast. And so those who misinterpret the role of the Holy Spirit in verse 6 do the same in verses 11 through 22. I'm going to do this very quickly, that God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Those who claim to be doing similar extraordinary miracles today need to spend some time in school with the Apostle Paul. This is another one of those passages that are descriptive, not prescriptive, which happens all the times in the scriptures and especially in the book of Acts. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. Acts 19 does not prescribe what we should be doing today as far as miracles. Rather, it simply describes that God was doing these extraordinary miracles through Paul as he did during this apostolic age. We see descriptions during the ministry of Jesus and these descriptions in the apostolic age of the apostles that having ceased in 70 AD with the close of the apostolic age, the inaugurating of the kingdom, and we are now in the continuing kingdom building. So we, we cannot manufacture miracles. It is dangerous to suggest that we do. We today are called to minister the whole gospel about the whole God to the whole world and then watch God change lives. And that is the point of verses 11 to 22. As people came to place faith in Christ, their whole lives were changed. They repented of core idolatry, which was not just personal idolatry, it was hardwired into how the entire culture operated. And so to say that they publicly burned their scrolls, which contained magical incantations, was to say that they repented of their faith in the world that they'd previously placed above faith in Christ. This was dramatic repentance of where they now place their faith. And they burned what many have said is the equivalent of perhaps $10 million worth of worldly idolatry. It is not a proof text for a public book burning. It is a text that, that describes what full repentance looks like. And even the demons can tell people who are faking it. Again, so much more that could and should be said about that. But let's move to the second part, the second major section. That was the ministry in Ephesus. Let's go on to the riot in Ephesus in part one that begins at verse 23 and goes through verse 34. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together along with the workmen in related trades. And he said, men, you know, we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. And there is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! 
Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great as Artemis! of the Ephesians. There are some great understatements in this whole section right from the beginning, uh, verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. It actually is more literally, about, the time, uh, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. And the word that's translated there, time, is not the ordinary word chronos, which is where we get chronology from, the seconds, minutes, days, uh, weeks, months, years, ticking away, it is the word kairos, a kairos moment. It's those significant moments in time. It's the, I can remember it like it was yesterday kind of moment. It's the life-changing moment when a huge decision, a huge realization or an experience takes place. Now, God is certainly sovereign over the milliseconds of chronos time, but we especially become aware of his divine purposes in these kairos moments. And so this Kairos moment, this riot in Ephesus is proof of the success of the gospel ministry in Ephesus. If just a few people had come to believe and it was just sort of a private personal belief that encouraged and inspired people personally, then it would have been no big deal. The riot in Ephesus happened because the gospel took hold of Ephesus. Notice how it started. Verse 24, a silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. So did the riot happen because some people began to believe in the Trinity? No. Did the riot happen because some people believed that Jesus saved them to eternal life? No. Did the riot happen because some people believe that everyone needs Jesus? No. Did the riot happen because some people were worried about their financial future? <laughs> yeah. As always, it's about the pocketbook. As always, it's about a threat to economics. The silversmiths who sold idols were losing business. As people became Christians, they no longer purchased idols. And those who made their money off of idols said this is a problem. Now, the temple of Artemis... In the Roman world, it's the Temple of Diana, was one of the ancient wonders of the world. People came from all over to visit the temple and purchase idols. And those who make a profit off of idolatry oppose Christianity. It is no different today. Those who make a profit off of idolatry oppose Christianity. And it's no different today. Idols today are everywhere. You can tell the strength of an idol by the reaction to even the threat of them being taken away. Where do people spend their money, their time, their energy? What are the things that are so hardwired to culture that even to suggest their removal or to lessen their influence will cause people to go crazy? 
For the past eight days, all people have been able to talk about is Charlottesville, Virginia. The events there were not just about a statue, not just about hate, or about any of the other superficial statements made. It's Ephesus. It's Jesus. It's the gospel. It's grace. It's the changing of allegiances from idols of the world and idols of the heart to declaring faith in Jesus Christ and worshiping him alone. It is about who and what and where we worship. Demetrius gets a group of people worked up into a lather and they begin shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And then some people grab Gaius, Aristarchus, two of Paul's traveling companions, and they throw them out, threatening them, putting them out in front of the amphitheater. And then go to verse 32. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. In other words, people just shouting. No one's listening, just shouting. No dialogue, just shouting. No reasoning, just shouting. And here it comes. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. Does that not describe the mob mentality? Does that not describe protesters and anti-protesters and those who want to talk about the protesters and anti-protesters and those who want to talk about those who want to talk about protesters and anti-protesters and those who post about it and those who want to post about those who post about it? The word translated confusion literally means to pour together, figuratively, figuratively to throw into confusion. We see it all the time in social media. Someone writes an article or posts on social media and the confusion begins. The one person posts it and then a person comes along in a comment and misrepresents what was said in the first place. And then someone comes in and misrepresents the person who misrepresented the first person. And then someone comes in and just does name calling of everybody. And then people come in and chime in and somehow awkwardly connect it to whatever their personal issue is. And then someone else comes in to correct everybody's grammar and spelling. Within minutes, you don't even remember what the topic was anyway. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The result of all the confusion is not clarity, but more confusion, more shouting. They shouted in unison for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Would you stop shouting for a minute so we can talk? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Christians must stop participating in the shouting. The people who are shouting aren't going to hear a word we say anyway. Stop shouting on Facebook. If you want to make a difference, take it to school. Get away from the noise. Find a place to have a reasonable dialogue with someone. And what should you dialogue about? That's the conclusion to the riot in Ephesus. Verse 35. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, 
we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. And in that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. And after he'd said this, he dismissed the assembly. Now quickly, he said, uh, we finally read about a governing leader who does in many cases the right thing. He makes four points. First, that everyone knows that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of Artemis. The people that were dragged to the amphitheater, Gaius, Aristarchus, Alexander, neither robbed temples nor blasphemy. In other words, they're innocent. Demetrius and the silversmith guild, if you have an actual case, bring it through proper legal channels. And we are in danger of being charged with rioting and we would not be able to justify today's conduct. Those are points that are important in general, I suppose. But in this case, the book of Acts, it serves as further proof of Paul's innocence. Remember that at the end of the book of Acts, Paul is going to be sitting in prison in Rome. Luke's careful historical research is establishing the legal precedent with examples from around the Roman world so that Paul is able to be determined innocent, that the gospel is able to be found no threat, and that grace really is the way forward through the God of grace. In fact, consider this. It is no exaggeration to say that no one today worships Artemis of the Ephesians. Meanwhile, millions upon millions worship Jesus Christ. Why does Christianity triumph? Not by trying to gain popular vote, not by circulating a petition to see if they can get 51% in controlling interest, not by playing on people's emotions, but by doing exactly what Jesus himself did and what he has sent us to do, to preach and practice the gospel. You want to turn the world upside down? Share with someone the whole gospel about the whole God that rules over your life and rules over the whole universe. You want to make a difference? Minister the gospel of sacrifice and service somewhere it is needed. And when you experience your own heart hardening, and when you hear the hardened hearts of others around you, rather than shouting, go back to the God of grace who chose not to pour out his righteous wrath upon us, but instead determined to love us sacrificially and redemptively. And we can do the same. Let's stop shouting on social media and start dialoguing with real people about Jesus. Let's stop shouting and take it to school. Take it to a place and time where reasoning and reasonableness about Jesus can have its day. Let's change the conversation from superficial statements about issues and have conversation about gospel truths. Some people will disagree, but for some, the truth will set them free. Amen.